0: Hello everybody, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking today at a dangerous persecution that surrounds us. And it's comforting to know that if you're immune to danger, uh, that you can have peace in your heart. The faithful believer knows that God protects him or her and therefore is fearless in life. And so we have our spiritual lives within and what happens outside of us you know, up to the point where, as Christ told us, even if, they, if we were martyred, uh, that we, our relationship with God cannot be hindered or broken or um, uh, hindered in any way because of outside uh, influences unless we let them in. It doesn't mean that we're reckless, but we're fearless. And there's an important difference. It's kind of like being Superman when you know there's no kryptonite in the room. I thought of uh, snorkeling, which I've had the privilege of doing a few times. Imagine you're snorkeling somewhere, say, in Hawaii, and you're just having a grand old time looking at the coral and the beautiful fish. And then you turn and you see immediately to your right is a shark. And it comes into view. This is a black tip shark that I found, by the way. And, you know, what would be your initial reaction? Obviously, this mad-eating shark shark 10 feet away from you, you're going to swim like mad. Your first thought is not going to be, oh, let me take a picture. That's not going to happen. But let's say the same situation happens to you, and yet you're in a submarine. If you're in a submarine, you see a shark, you'd actually think it was cool. You would take a picture and you would uh, enjoy it. You'd, you'd take a picture and send it to all your friends, post it, post it on Facebook, say what a cool thing it was that you got to see a shark up so close. Well, there's you know a few inches of glass and steel between you and the man-eater, and so you're not scared. Uh, <clears throat> today we're going to see God at work within within the faithful believer. God at work within the faithful believer while the danger lurks all around us. And uh, we see that in Thessalonians. We're going to see a number of passages in 1 Peter today that will show us the same thing and in many passages in the New Testament that reveal that the believer must suffer. Uh, However, the believer does not fear the, po- the faithful believer does not fear what is outside of him uh, because he has a relationship with God within that cannot be hindered or touched by that which happens outside unless he lets it. And so we're going to see this in Thessalonians and in 1 Peter. And so before we do that, let's pray. Let's thank God for his word. Let's be Uh, very grateful and thankful that God in every aspect of life reveals to us what it is that we need to do and should do as we face all circumstances. So with reverence and thankfulness, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the spirit within Thank you that you and you alone have provided us eternal life, salvation, and that we can with confidence know that we have a relationship with you within within us. Uh, if the world's gone mad around us, and sometimes it seems like it does, that does not affect or hinder our relationship with you. By grace, you have indwelt us. By grace, you have made us new. And these old bodies that we're in will be shed, and we will have new ones for all of eternity. You, Father, and you alone have made that. And so you have told us in your word that we will suffer and that we will be persecuted. You have told us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we are blessed when that happens. For ours is the kingdom of God. And so we thank you, Father, that we can know through your word these very things so that when they happen, we can stand firm, hold up the shield of faith, and within, continue to possess the joy and the peace that you provide. We ask, Father, that our hearts are enlightened to do that very thing. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. So in verse 13, which we uh, pretty much completed the last couple of classes, it says, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul writes, For this reason, and the reason is what has occurred from uh, chapter 2, verse 1 onward, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men. And Paul had relayed to them in chapter 2 what he went through, uh, the suffering that he experienced, and also the um, the, the you know the fact that he uh, became a father to them, a nursing mother to them. He related all this to them, and so we have in this the fact that Paul is extremely grateful, not for himself, and not even really for them, but for God. He says, "For this reason, we constantly thank God." that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And uh, we established here, this uh, believe is a present participle. It refers to a continuous action, and therefore normally it does. And, and in the context here, it would refer to the fact that the Thessalonians have continued to put their faith in the Word of God, put their faith in what Paul had taught them. And therefore, because their faith is mixed with the truth within themselves, that the Word does its work, and it works within. Notice it's in you who believe, and that's where the Word does its work. So the Word of God, as we saw in Hebrews 4 uh, yesterday, It's alive and powerful, and therefore it does its work within us. It's supernatural. The Word of God is God, and therefore being supernatural, it works within us. But if we don't believe it, and this makes perfect sense, if if we don't believe what we're hearing or reading, or if we don't hear or read at all, uh, what work can the Word of God do? It can't stay outside of us. It has to be in us. Meaning, in our hearts. We have to understand it. Now, how are you going to understand God's Word without believing it? It's impossible. And so, by faith, the Word of God now in us, it does its work. We don't know how it works. God doesn't give us such details, but He tells us that it works. And if, as you see here with the Thessalonians, who were brand new believers... They have seen it work. Paul has seen it work. They're surrounded by persecution. It is hard to be a Christian in Thessalonica at this time. It's very difficult. They are culturally and socially ostracized from their own families, if you can imagine, you know, if, if your whole family just said, uh, you know, we hate you, we don't want to be with you, get out. If your neighbors hate you, if people won't do business with you, if you do business, um, and, and on and on. You know, the, the problems that they face are immense. And yet they continue to follow and show, as Paul revealed in chapter 1, that they have good works that they have perseverance, that they have hope, that they have love, and that they have faith. And, you know, Paul can see it. Paul hears about it. In fact, uh, Paul said in chapter 1 that the whole region had heard about the faith that was being exhibited in Thessalonica. Imagine their witness was by their faithfulness. And, you know, we can do the exact same thing. But it reveals to us that, you know, what is going to work in you to change you, to make you into this, you know, what God wants you to be, and that's going to be your faith in the Word of God. And so you've got to hear the Word of God, study the Word of God, put your faith in the Word of God, and then be patient. Uh, You know, as one of the writers I got coming up, we get that far, all good writers acknowledge this, that one of the... Main foundations of Christianity is patience and suffering. Now, there's other things in Christianity, but two extremely important and main things. and, And one of the, you know, the lack of patience is what causes believers to run away. And Run from the word, as Jesus said in the parable of the sower. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of pleasure that people seek after that. And he described that as the thorns that choke the word. And the word doesn't bring forth fruit to maturity. People don't persevere. Um, So, after giving thanks to God for their receiving the word of God for what it is, Uh, for truly being the Word of God or from God. Then Paul acknowledges that they did so in the midst of intense persecution. This is a great lesson for us all, and it bears a lot of repeating. When the Word is working uh, by faith within, what happens outside of us does not hinder our growth, but in fact enhances it. And now if you can... Go back in time in your memory to our study of James. James chapter 1, it said, consider it all. uh, No, that's not what he said. There goes my memory. No, he does say, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because those trials bring in you endurance and a quality of faith. So, as we'll see, without the trials, we're not going to mature. And that's a fact, uh, thus says God in his word. If we don't suffer innocently, and I do mean innocently, not suffering for our mistakes or our sins, but when we suffer innocently, without if we don't do that, we're not going to mature. And the Word of God says that plainly. And so we've got to learn to embrace it while keeping it from infiltrating our soul with sin. And we're going to I'll hurry up and we'll get there and see it all. 1 Thessalonians 2:14 through 16 therefore if we summarize it as suffering and persecution for following Christ and as the Lord said in the sermon on the mount Matthew 5:10 blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven right and what a tremendous promise theirs is the kingdom of heaven like all believers have the are members of the kingdom of heaven so what does this mean it, you know, and I, I, I would only stay as vague as Christ does here, but it, we would at least conclude that it means a lot that if we suffer for his sake, for righteousness' sake, not for sins, that we're actually going to, you know, there's something about the kingdom of heaven that we're going to inherit that we wouldn't otherwise. All believers are members of it, whether they mature or they don't, but there's something special in life, in time now, and also in eternity for those who persevere in the faith. There's a great reward in it. Uh, Paul, so, uh, what did I do? Did I, oh, okay, here we go. Verse 14. Uh, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, Paul would know this. One of the interesting things here that we might miss, but we're very good at our biblical history, at least of the early church, uh, is the fact that who is the greatest persecutor of the church in Judea? It's the one writing this letter. Before he became a believer, Saul of Tarsus was doing his work in Judea. You know, when they stoned Stephen to death, they laid their clothes you know they (laughs) apparently to have a good stoning you got to take your cloak off i guess you can't whip a stone fast enough if you're encumbered by your cloak so they took them off and they laid them at uh the saul's feet while he looked over and, and and gave hearty approval to the stoning death of stephen uh and then and then the believers flew they fled from jerusalem uh you know, and and the persecution there continued, and it continued to happen to when Saul. Now Paul uh, became, an, uh, became a became a spreader of the gospel there down in uh, in Jerusalem. And we'll see that here in a second. So, and he's going to mention that he says, "For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen." I love that here because it tells us that uh, in Thessalonica, their countrymen are generally Gentiles. And in Judea, the countrymen are Jews. So it's not a nationality thing. It's not that, you know, Jews are more evil than Gentiles. No. the Gentiles are more evil than Jews. No. It's like mankind without God is evil. And they are plenty in, a, in their generation and also in ours that continue to persecute those who live under the faith. And so you endure the same sufferings by the hands of Gentiles as they did in Judea at the hands of Jews. Uh, and so, and he finishes with that, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. It, it shows us the depth of evil that mankind can resort to, which Paul uses here as a blanket Um, uh, test result, I guess, for all of the human race. That, you know, not everybody put Jesus to death, but, you know, when the authorities said, we're going to put Jesus to death, the crowd was like, okay. They went along with it. When they were prompted to shout, crucify him, crucify him, they did. And then the next day they went on with their work. Well, you know, it's it's Passover week, so it wouldn't have been work the next day. But you know what I mean? They just went on with their lives. They're like, well, that Jesus thing is over. What's next? The the crowd of unbelievers are totally motivated by the authorities. And Paul says here, and not only they killed the Lord Jesus, but they drove us out. In Acts 9, 28 through 29, it says, and he, Paul, was with them. Moving about freely in Jerusalem. So this is after Paul's salvation. He comes back to Jerusalem. uh, And he's with Peter and James. And he says, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. And they were attempting to put him to death. This is the same guy that was in partnership with them not just a little bit ago. And now they're, they don't care. They don't care. You know, our great leader in the persecution has converted to Christianity. Well, maybe we should give Christianity another thought. You know, maybe we should think about it. No, let's just kill him. I have an agenda. And look, we're surrounded with people who have this agenda. Now, whether depending on you know, the, the, the kind of suffering that comes upon you, that comes upon me, that comes upon others, it's going to be different. Right? Some people seem to be persecuted more than others. Some people seem to go through more suffering than others. I'd say for certain they do. But that's not the point. The point is, is that we who follow the Lord are going to be, by the will of God, uh, persecuted and put under pressure for our faithfulness. And I, I will show you, it is by the will of God. If God wills it so, when God wills it so, and he will, it will happen. So if it seems that I'm getting more suffering than someone else, rather than saying, hey, God, like Peter did, what about John? You know, the Lord said to Peter, you're going to go someplace you don't want to go and you're going to die. And Peter didn't like that, apparently, and said, well, what's going to happen to John? And Jesus said, that's none of your business, what's going to happen to John? Paraphrasing. Peter, you what? <laughs> he said, you follow me. Don't worry about what's going to happen to John. And the same thing for us. We get our eyes on others. We get our eyes on ourselves. We start comparing ourselves with others, and we start looking at ourselves. Why is this happening to me? God, why do you hate me? As if he does. We have to go it and know it. Oh, that, as a poet, sorry, I just rolled with that. I'm just terrible. We have to know and go forward in the fact that we're under God's will. And his will be done. So, as Paul uh, states here, is careful to also tell them that the those who persecute them are going to be handled by God. And therefore, we are not to retaliate. We see this in Peter as well, as well as plenty of other passages. We're just going to look at Peter today. Uh, Paul is careful to tell them and to us, obviously, that to leave such people in the hands of God. Let, leave them in the hands of God. Do not seek to retaliate. Do not seek re- revenge. And also, do not allow them, they're not worth it, to take your peace away. Do not get angry or bitter. Maintain... See, where's your relationship with God? It's in here. right? It's not out there. It's in here. It's in you. It's in your heart. Christ is at home where? In our hearts. Don't let them in. Don't let that in. And what happens when you let it in is you start to get angry, you start to get bitter, you start to get worried, and you become weak. They're not worth throwing away your confidence and happiness. Leave them in the hands of God. As Peter will tell us, the Lord never retaliated. He left them in the hands of the Father. And Paul says here, no one's going to escape God's justice. Nobody. Look at uh, the second part of verse 15. They are not pleasing to God, but I love this. They're hostile to all men. Right? Who are they at peace with? Nobody. There's a lot of that going around. Those who are hostile, they group together and seem to be at peace with one another. But how long is it real peace? Do people who are in cahoots and doing evil, are they truly a band of brothers? They are not. They bite and devour one another. It's just a matter of time. This is a dead-end game. Evil, sin, it's awful. There's nothing in it besides misery. So they're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Amazing that they don't even want the gospel to go out with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. All of this is translated very well, and I think it's explanatory right there in the English. I don't think you need much expository interpretation here. You can just read it and understand. It's very clear. When the Word of God works in you, what is happening outside of you does not hinder it. In fact, the outside situations become opportunities for work and for service, and that's how we have to see them. Rather than reacting to the suffering that comes upon us, we should pause, and I would say do this in prayer, or return to your Bible and start reading. Uh, or listen to a message, whatever you have to do to get your head right and say, look, this is an opportunity for me because it's in these situations that I mature and, in fact, on a rapid basis. These are times of accelerated growth, and they don't come upon us all the time. We're talking about undeserved suffering here, not deserved suffering, not the suffering for sin. We've all got plenty of that have plenty of opportunities for that hopefully it's getting less and less but it's when you're persecuted for the sake of christ those are great opportunities we have to see them that way i tell myself the same thing these are situations and in fact we see in peter will say to us that people might get saved your enemies will see the light of christ in you not all of them but some of them might and you actually may win some to Christ because of how you respond to their aggressive evil toward you. How oh, a wonderful thing that would be. Therefore, the faithful believer is shielded from the situations of life that cause most people to suffer terribly within themselves. So, getting back to, I'm going to go back to my, uh-oh. Getting back to my shark and um, submarine. <laughs> I forgot what it was called for a second. Uh, this analogy is fun. I, I kind of liked it, but it's not exactly accurate. Because in this situation, there is absolutely no danger from the shark whatsoever. I mean, he doesn't, like, nibble on you a little bit. You're perfectly, if your sub's in good shape, you're perfectly comfortable and you know, you're not suffering at all. You're sitting pretty. Is that true when you're going through the suffering that we're going to go through? Not quite. All right, so it, it's a good analogy as far as it goes. And by the way, not all analogies are perfect. So if you're looking for a perfect analogy, you're not going to find it. You might as well look for a perfect Christian. So uh, what you're looking for here is, now we add to this, the fact that you actually are going to feel some pain here. Did Christ feel pain, right? We saw him on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, when he, uh, you know, approached Jerusalem and he wept over the city. He's in pain. He wept over the city because he knew what was going to happen. So, yeah, there's pain. When, you know, when uh, David's best friend... Uh, uh, rebelled against him. When Jonas, Jonathan chose his father over David, it had to hurt. When that happens to us, it hurts. So we will be hurt by persecution and trial, but it will only strengthen our faith and our resolve. And so I give you, this picture is of a uh, at Camp 4, and that's Mount Everest. And Camp 4 is the highest camp that uh, you get acclimated to you have to get acclimated to the the atmosphere uh you know the it's low pressure low oxygen you stay there for a, i forget how long and then you try and go to the summit if the weather's good enough think of you know you've got to be at least unless you're being taken by a guide you don't have to be in the the best of shape but let's say you're the sherpa that's taking everybody up right what kind of You know, what kind of uh, strength do you have as a Sherpa from Nepal or wherever that is up here in Camp 4 ready to summit Mount Everest? You've grown accustomed to low low atmosphere, to low oxygen. You've grown accustomed to cold. Your muscles are strong. And why is that? Because you've suffered. This is the suffering of exposure. And that is a great analogy for the suffering of the Christian life. When we're exposed to suffering, and again this is for the Christ's sake, not because of sin, it strengthens us. And the more it happens, the stronger we get. It's kind of like getting used to the cold, getting used to climbing, getting used to persevering. Now, can you take that next step? You're exhausted. Can you take the next step? Don't stop. right? As Paul writes in Galatians, don't, you, don't grow weary or lose heart. And it's suffering that gives us this strength. And so that's why our opening analogy is not exactly accurate because we really don't suffer any pain in that one. But in reality, through the persecutions and trials around us, Uh, they don't hinder, if we're faithful to the Word of God, they're not going to hinder our growth in the Word of God, but we will feel the pain. That kind of pain, however, unlike the pain of sin, strengthens our faith and strengthens our resolve. Right? If you know you have gone through this already, here comes the undeserved suffering. Here comes the person who's going to ridicule you and mock you and malign you and say, ah, get in line. I, I've been mocked and maligned before. I know exactly what to do. And if, if, when I've been persecuted, I've done what the Word of God says and not what my flesh wants to do, which is revenge. You now, fight back. I have learned to be like my Lord, and I, what do we do to our enemies who persecute us? We do good to them. We pray for them. In fact, we have pity for them. We hope they get saved. We hope they believe the Gospel. We hope they believe the truth. But they're going to be dealt with by God, not by me. And so, in my relationship with God, and by the way, there's another thing that Peter is going to bring out, is that the, your suffering in this life is very temporary. Right? We're going to be in heaven where there's no more pain, no more tears. So, you know, And we know that. And for some reason, these brand new believers in Thessalonica knew that. Paul had taught it to them. Of course, that's why they knew it. But um, they believed it. They didn't waver on it. And they're only saved for a few months. So, as Peter's going to show us here now coming up, uh, is that we will not live in God's will without suffering. We won't. We need this strength. We need the strength of being able to stay at Camp Four. All right? You start you start at Base Camp, then you go to Camp One, then you go to Camp Two, Camp Three, Camp Four. I think that's I think there's a Camp One. <laughs> My wife would know. She reads books about this. She loves this, but. Um, you know, mountaineering is, is a great, uh, I wouldn't want to do it. I'd be a, a little baby out there, but, you know, it, it's great to read about. Uh, it's exciting stuff. The <coughs> You know, it. you don't run up to Camp 4. You stay at base camp for a while. You acclimate. You have to be at base camp for a, a good couple of weeks, I think, if I remember my, my reading on it. And then then you start your ascent. But even then, you don't just run to the top. You have to go to one place and stay there, then the next place and stay there, and each one at each camp you acclimate. It's kind of like spiritual growth. <clears throat> and, you know, we're not going to be strong at this if we don't suffer. So this anal- by this analogy, we use the human body, which perseveres through fatigue, heat, cold, hardship. One of the other things I thought about and I've read about uh, just recently, I finished, um, uh, not Lone Survivor, uh, American Sniper. And uh, Chris Kyle writes in that book about uh, seal, Navy SEAL training. And he talks at length about how it's not just physical strength, but mental strength that gets you trained and to graduate that school. Uh, same with Green Berets. I've read a bit about that. And I have a dear friend who's a Green Beret. Who uh, <clears throat> thinks they're better than the SEALs, so I'll agree with him. <laughs> I know there's some combat between that, to use an analogy, but. Um, you know, what, same thing, Green Beret, any special forces, you know, what are they? Trained, mentally, physically. And this is what God wants for us. And, and it shows to us that I have to be fully involved in my spiritual life, it's not just me you know, doing some prayer or doing something that just kind of turns the Holy Spirit on and all of a sudden I'm a spiritual champion. It's not like that, is it? You know, in some denominations, like the Pentecostal, some parts of Pentecostalism, if you get that second anointing, second blessing, whatever they call it, then all of a sudden you become super strong because you've figured out the secret way how to turn on the Holy Spirit. There's no secret to it. It's faith, faith, faith. What do you say to the Thessalonians? You received the word of God as from the word of God. It is from God, not from men. Therefore, you saw its authority. You saw its authenticity. You saw its inerrancy. You saw its sufficiency. Now, very quickly... The suffering occurring outside of you can infiltrate your soul, and by getting your eyes off of God, it creates weakness within. It's made me think of the Hey Kool-Aid guy. Right? He's always bashing through (laughs) a wall. You know, these commercials, I love these commercials. He's always running through someone's wall and wrecking someone's house. You know, when the little kids say, Hey Kool-Aid! But here, you know, you have Hey Kool-Aid on a wrecking ball. And I liken this to you know, he's filled with sin or temptation to sin. And he busts through the wall of your soul because you've let him. What is this? Well, the perse- those who persecuted you, maligned you, caused suffering in your life, stole from you, whatever. And God allows it all. It's his will. You got mad. You got bitter. You sought revenge. Hey, Kool-Aid is in your soul now wreaking havoc breaking walls, making a mess, right? You gave up your peace. (laughs) You wrecked your peace. This problem occurs for the believer when the outside situations cause them to leave their faith in the Word of God. And it may happen momentarily. Uh, You know, uh, who of us are sinless? No hands go up. Uh, anywhere in Christendom, if they do, then uh, they don't know anything. But uh, we're all sinners, and we all fail from time to time. When you see yourself in weakness, when you see yourself saying, oh, my God, I just reacted and got bitter, what do you do? You stop being bitter. You recover. Confess and recover. Confess and repent. Repent means just turn around. I'm not going to be bitter anymore. We all lose it at times. <clears throat> by the grace of God, we're forgiven. But the believer who is successful at this, like we can't be failing and failing and failing and failing for the rest of our lives. We have to have strength. The believer who is successful at this does the will of God, does what God tells them to do, and which means he loves the persecutors, he prays for his persecutors, he does good to his persecutors. And he prays that they'll be saved and they'll see. But he will not allow the persecutor to get in between him and his relationship with God. He will not allow the persecutor to get in between him and his relationship with God's word. This And by the way, this is not permanent. This is not a permanent thing. That persecutor, that person is not going to be persecuting you forever. It's all temporary. And God uses it to make us strong. <clears throat> so when we're persecuted unjustly, before, uh, sorry, because we're following Christ, we need to recall God's word and act on His will. And we do this by exercising our faith. Either we do that, or we fight back and seek revenge. And that we must not do. a the theme of go to First Peter chapter three, <clears throat> please. The theme of Peter's first epistle is to uh, encourage believers to deal with uh, severe persecution. Um, And they seem to be new believers too. So it's quite similar to the situation in Thessalonica. Who Peter is writing to is not even remotely around Thessalonica. You think it's not by region that this happens. the people who Peter's writing to are in Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, and up in that area, pretty much the whole area up there. When I say up there, I'm kind of looking at a map. But Thessalonica, if you're looking at Europe, it's in Greece, and Turkey's up here. It's hundreds of miles away. And they're severely persecuted. Peter's trying to encourage them to deal with it properly, and he deals with this quite a bit. He points out that when we suffer like Christ suffered, we must suffer innocently. And he also points out that Christ did not retaliate, and we must not either. Look at 1 Peter 3.8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. I think one of my future messages is going to take every one of these lists. These, there are multiple of them in the New Testament that are lists It's like one virtue after another or one sin after another. Uh, Almost all letters have it. and It would be great to just look at them all, all these lists that are thrown at us. But anyway, here's another list that we are to be to one another. Harmonious, meaning we're united in in mind. Sympathetic, meaning that we're forgiving and love one another. Brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. You see that? It's not tit for tat in the Christian life. It's not like a justice system where if you did this to me, I'm going to do the same back to you. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Now well, Peter's here repeating just what the Lord had taught. That we, you know, we don't seek our own but that we are uh, uh, kind-hearted to our enemies and loving our enemies and doing good to our enemies. So he says, give a blessing and said, for you are called for the very purpose <clears throat> that you might inherit a blessing. And the calling here, is, as Peter points out, Paul points out in, in Philippians, that it is part of our election that we're called to suffer, and God has willed it so. This suffering is for our strength. Go to chapter 1, verse 3, the opening of the letter. After his salutation, Peter writes in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter, like Paul, uses great long run-on sentences. And so if you could absorb all of that into your heart, is that we are saved, born again, that we are guaranteed resurrection, that we have an inheritance that is not going anywhere it will not rot. It is not ever able to be stolen. It belongs to you for all of eternity. You're protected by the power of God. And at the end of time, your salvation in full, your resurrection body is going to be revealed. <clears throat> so in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You gotta love this phrase little while in the scripture. Right? It's never a little while. <laughs> Especially when you're suffering. You know, it's not like two minutes. It's going to be days, weeks, months, maybe years. Maybe the rest of your life. Who knows? A little while is, you know, to God, a day is a thousand years kind of thing. <clears throat> but for in eternity, none. So, you're distressed by various trials. Notice in verse 7, so that the proof, dokimazo there, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your salvation, uh, sorry, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, the last part there, Peter could be talking about the salvation of faith in Christ at the moment of salvation when you believed and became born again. But it's more likely in context that he's talking about the continued faith that Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 2 which is continued faith. and So what would salvation here mean? Not salvation from the lake of fire, but salvation from a sinful life unto eternal life experienced in time. That fits the context better. Uh, <clears throat> and so it's, you're tested, right? The proof of your faith, he says in verse 7, is more precious than gold, which is perishable. And he's turning that back to your inheritance in the, in the sentence before which is imperishable and undefiled. Jesus told us that the thorns that choke the word of God is the pursuit of riches. Peter's saying the same thing here. That your faith is far more precious than the gold or the wealth or the pleasure that your flesh wants to push you towards to go get. That you are settling for something so less. What is far more valuable is your faith. Because it's going to make you into something that you have never thought or imagined. It's so brilliantly beautiful. God gives us his word so that this will happen. And gives us our faith so that this will happen. And therefore we will be delivered. Jesus told us in the parable of the sower that those who are worried and pursued riches and pleasure... Would not mature. Therefore, if a believer, just because a believer is alive, doesn't mean a believer knows really how to live. If the salvation here that Peter is talking about in verse 9 is deliverance from sin unto eternal life, it's deliverance from a world where, as we saw in James, faith without works is dead. And so what he meant there was that it's a life that is kind of like death, and God wants to deliver us from that. So, 1 Peter 2.20, Peter writes, For what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? You see, that's deserve suffering. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you, are, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Right, favor is the word charis. It's like the word grace, but this means that God is pleased with this. This is what God wants to see in us. Because in it we're being just like Him. He wants to see us in Him, because it is life and life life abundantly, life indeed. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So is suffering necessary? Absolutely. We have to learn to embrace it, meaning not be afraid of it. Uh, we have to learn to not react to it, but to see it for what it is. Again, we're not talking about, as he says here, not, su- not suffering for sin, but suffering for doing what is right. These are the instances where God is really accelerating our growth and really putting muscle on our faith. Go to First <clears throat> Peter 3.13. So, what about all those people who are persecuting me? Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Huh, who said that? Peter's stealing this right from the Lord. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.10. You suffer for my sake, you are blessed are you, and you suffer for my name's sake. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Then he quotes Isaiah 8:12, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify means to set apart. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. This uh, this passage is often quoted as you know an evangelistic passage, which. Meaning, what I mean there is being ready to give a de- defense to everyone who asks you, which it definitely is. You know, it is your part of your evangelistic um, outreach to the world. But notice the context of it. The context of it is when you are being you're suffering for righteousness' sake. To <clears throat> if you were sinning, that you're suffering and you reacted with bitterness, you're suffering and you reacted with anger or self-pity, or worry, can you give a defense for the hope that's in you? Actually, there is no hope in you. <laughs> You've given it away. I mean, You can get it back, of course. But you're of no defense. You have no defense. Notice he says, and to do that, you give an account for the hope that's in you with gentleness and reverence. Reverence means fear of God. And gentleness means... Quite the opposite of bitterness and anger. So I'm actually able to gently, to my persecutors, tell them why I have hope and why I love them. And probably the great majority of them will just say, you're a stupid idiot and leave you. And you might say, well, adios, thanks for leaving. That's a blessing in and of itself. But the greater blessing is that some of them are going to come around. When you're persecuted by someone and you respond with the light that is Christ, that's one of the times where your light is shining the brightest. What a witness you are. So notice this in verse 17. uh, Oh, sorry, verse 16. So with gentleness and reverence. Then in verse 16 he says... And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You see, what Peter knows here, and what we all know, is that our persecutors are going to be looking intently for our mistakes. They're going to be looking intently for a reason to accuse us. And if we have godly lives, they're not going to find any. And so Peter says here, your witness cannot be, again, one of responding with sin, with bitterness, with anger, with fault. You know, when people suffer, the the flesh rises up like it always does and says, hey, let's do something to comfort ourselves that's ungodly, whether it be drugs or alcohol or sex or something else. Or even gossip, right? Doesn't If you, you slander or malign or gossip about somebody, it kind of relieves the tension. And so we're violating God's word with either sins of the tongue or sins against our bodies because the pain <clears throat> we're trying to alleviate. It's a, fall, it's, an, it's a trap. And who told us it's a trap? Well, we do learn this by experience as well. But the word of God told us. And so in the word of God, we say, well, no, the Word of God is from God. I must obey the Word of God. And that person who is driving me absolutely nuts right now is temporary. And I love them. They may get saved by what I react to here or how I react. And, you know, when I, when I do it this way, I'm being God-like. I'm being like the one I love, the one I want to be like. So then in verse, so you put them to shame, that's your good behavior, keep a good conscience. And then in verse 17, he says, For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, part of this is very easy to understand. It is better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Okay, that's easy to understand, and it's a very important truth. But the thing that's harder to understand is that if God should will it so. And what would God will? Your suffering. Uh, Does God will your suffering for sin? Well, you know, technically he doesn't have to will that. It's the way of the universe. God has willed that at the beginning of all time. But really, it's just a part of the essence of God. Unrighteousness. Equals suffering. Righteousness equals life. Why is that? Because God is righteousness and God is life. Anything that is against the creator is going to end up suffering. And so it's not willing for you to suffer for doing what is wrong. It's so Peter says here, if we kind of keep the word order, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. That's what God wills. And that tells us that suffering is not always going to come. When I every time I do something right, do I suffer? No. Sometimes I do what it's right and it's marvelous. I get blessed immediately. It's great. I do what it's right to another person and they appreciate it and I get rewarded right there and then. It's brilliant. It's not all the time. It's when God wills it so. And that's why in some people's lives they get more of it than others. If you're suffering and you're comparing yourself to others, don't do that. It is the will of God. Peter, you're going to be girded, taken where you don't want to go, and you're going to die there. Ah, Peter don't want that. What do you mean? What, what's going to happen to John? None of your business. Follow me. Feed my sheep. That's the one who's writing this letter here, isn't it? I think he's figured it out by now. I don't think he's afraid of being taken where he doesn't want to go and dying. I think he he relishes in it. In fact, I know he does. His words tell us so. How did Peter change so much? The word of God. That's how. So, let's see. All right, let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to return to our main passage, but I am out of time. 1 Peter 4, 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin <coughs> so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of God for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the gentiles now this does gentiles here means heathen it means the nations it doesn't mean just non-Jews uh, Gen- so, therefore, it's a, it's a term in the New Testament very often for the unbelieving masses, if you will. So, the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Is another list. <laughs> I love the list. This is obviously a negative list. This is the list, one of them that describes the way of the world. Now, this gives us insight into why the people that Peter is writing to are suffering and why the people that Paul is writing to in Thessalonica are also suffering. If you remember, Paul said, You are suffering, you are imitators of the churches in Judea who suffered at the hands of their own countrymen. You're suffering at the hands of your countrymen. Meaning, your neighbors. I don't get it. Why, if I become a Christian, that's all that's happened, that my neighbor is maligning me, ridiculing me, causing me to suffer, probably financially as well, in that society. If people won't do business with you, or buy your goods, or Say you're a you know there's uh, 20 to 30 percent slavery in the Roman Empire at this time. 20 to 30 percent of the population are slaves. And in Peter's letter, he writes to the slaves. Paul does the same thing in First Corinthians. He does the same thing in Ephesians. That there's so much slavery, and a lot of these slaves are becoming Christians. And P- Peter writes in chapter three, if you're a slave, obey your master. Can you imagine, if you're a slave, you become a believer in Christ, and now your master, who you used to go with him to worship idols, you used to go with him to the immoral festivals of the idol worship, which at the time, idol worship was surrounded by immorality, and now you don't go anymore. Because you're a believer and you've been convicted by the Word of God, You're not doing what the Corinthians did and being like, oh, it's all grace anyway. Let's go to the temple. You know, let's go to Aphrodite's temple and have sex and get drunk. Let's just say, hey, we're all forgiven. But these believers who have been faithful to the word of God are no longer doing this. And their neighbors and their parents and their cousins and their uncles and their masters and their slaves, whoever is saying, we're not doing that anymore. We worship Christ. We know, now all of us, even in modern times, know what this feels like. You don't run with them anymore. Look at verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation. What's that word, dissipation? Where have we seen that before? Don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Remember this word? It meant prodigality. The prodigal son, what did he do with his father's wealth? Threw it away. He took the things that his father had given him, and with both hands he got rid of them. He said, my own pleasure is more valuable than my father's things. And see, with us, we love the Word of God. It becomes, you know, even though we've done it, I know, I know I've done it. and Perhaps all of us have done it. That we've taken the Father's things and thrown them away. And we have a gracious Father, just like when the prodigal son came back. The Father ran out to him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. So our Father forgives us and says, welcome home. But what God expects is that as we mature that we see how valuable his things are and that we no longer throw them away. And what's more valuable that we have in this earth, a tangible, valuable thing, than that scripture that's right in front of you? That living and active scripture. Every one of those words. Yes, it's ink on a page, but its if it's left in the page, then it's worthless. It's just paper and ink. But when it becomes a part of our soul, then we don't run with them anymore. And so what do they do in return? They get convicted by this, don't they? They get like, what, you're better than us now? You think you're better than us, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes? And they malign. They discredit. They hate it. They hate you. and you're persecuted. So notice he says they, they malign you. In all this, verse 4, they're surprised that you do not run with them. In the same excesses of, excesses of dissipation, they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Just like Paul, Peter here says, look, do not fight back against them. Love them. Do good to them. Who's going to take care of them? Who is going to judge all? Leave them in the hands of the Lord. Ah, it's good stuff. These words mixed with your faith in the Holy Spirit are the key to several things. The key to peace, no matter what the circumstances are. And the key to overcoming sin. If you have an area of sin in your life that you want to overcome, you've seen it here tonight. Uh, do you want to overcome some form of sin? Because, uh, I was going to get into I'm out of time, but Peter says here, if you've suffered in the flesh, you've ceased from sin. What does that mean, ceased from sin? It doesn't mean that you become sinless. It means, in the context that he taught, you don't run with them anymore. right? Your life has changed. You're not addicted anymore. right? You've been set free by Christ at the moment of salvation, and through the Word of God, you have said to yourself by faith, you know what, I'm leaving this prison. What did Peter say? It's been time enough. Time is sufficient for us to have been like the unbeliever. And every believer can say, yeah, I've done that long enough. And now what? Freedom comes. But the freedom comes by what? Faithfully obeying the Word of God, and especially when suffering comes. Staying the course. Don't fight back. And then the sin will cease and the results will be lasting. And and that's because uh, cease here is in the perfect tense, which tells us that the results will continue. As long as you're faithful, the results will continue. So my faithfulness and my faith to obey God's Word, I'm not going to do it perfectly all the time, but my faith to obey it will, over time, cause me to overcome sin. It's not a sexy, jazzy solution that people want. (laughs) You know, people want the quick fix. I'm sorry, there's no quick fix. Salvation is a quick fix, but at salvation, we don't let go. If that were true, then all of us would be we'd be mature in a day. Um, but all of us hold on to the old life to some extent, and God is teaching us to let go. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for the things that are in your word that set us free, that give us the ability to handle life that comes at us. It can come at us hard, Father, but we know that you, through your word, will deliver us. And we can trust you, and we know that when these trials come, that you are increasing our strength and increasing our endurance. We praise you for that. And, Father, we ask that our our eyes of our heart are enlightened. In Christ's name, amen.
1: Oh.